Hi, thanks for joining us. We're taking our Bibles and we're going to the book of Numbers, Numbers chapter 4, in our studying on the wilderness wanderings, looking at Israel and their movement through and from Egypt all the way to the promised land. When I was doing some study on this passage and even Numbers chapter 3 last week we covered, uh, I started thinking about some of the language that's used in uh, the passages. And I started thinking about our English language. Our English language is really rich with a lot of uh, good imagery and a lot of meaning to our words, but it's sometimes it's very difficult to communicate with our words. Sometimes our, our English language is very vague. Sometimes it's very specific. But especially when you get into phrases or idioms or metaphors that we use on a common basis, can you imagine trying to translate that into another language? Or someone who's trying to learn English as a second language, trying to understand some of these phrases. For example, like between a rock and a hard place. Or the idea of playing it by ear. What do we play by ear? Playing what what by ear? Or even jumping on the bandwagon. For, For those of us, like, what's a bandwagon? We don't see a bandwagon going down the street much anymore. Or quitting or doing something cold turkey. Well, what's a cold turkey? Is it frozen? Is it one from the, the grocer's freezer? Or even a phrase I use often, and I know some people don't like me using it, but I'll, I'll use the phrase, my bad. You know, just to say, I'm sorry. Well, how does that translate? How does that work? And it causes difficulty. In fact, if you go to certain sections of the United States, even if you go down south or out west, you're going to learn different phrases. When I came to Pennsylvania, there were some phrases that I was just uh, surprised by it. It took me a while to, to learn, like that the sidewalk is slippy. I, I, what is slippy? You know, I, I didn't know what that was, or the idea of writing up your room or outing the lights. Or uh, you, uh, you, I even have to look at it to say it. Yins, yuns, yuins, yous, depending on what part of Pennsylvania you're from and how you say it. Those are just, those are just phrases that are different or, or dialectic differences of, of words. So it can cause confusion at times. Even the idea if you want to go out for breakfast and get some dippy eggs. Uh, what's, what's a dippy egg? Or even you might get your dippy eggs with uh, Scrapple. Honestly, until I was 22 years old, I had never heard the term Scrapple. I didn't know what it was. I'm glad I do now. Unlike some pastoral staff members, I love Scrapple. It shows a little too much, but I, I like my Scrapple. It's, it's good stuff. But Numbers 3 and 4 does the same thing. In fact, when you look at the, the passage in Numbers 3 and 4, there's three words that come up that we will have the tendency to put all into one idea. It's the idea of service. And in fact, if you look in the, in the passage, you're going to see the word charge in the King James. I'm using the, uh, that perspective here in version. The, the word charge, chapter 3, verse 7, it says, they shall keep his charge. But then later on in the verse, it's going to talk about to do the service of the tabernacle. And there's even a third word that starts to show up in the passage. You'll see it in verse 6, where it talks about in chapter 3, talking about that they may minister unto them. Now, when we look at those words in English, we have a tendency to just look and just lump it all together and talk about, okay, this is their service in the tabernacle, talking about the Levites. This is what they do in ministry. And we just sort of think it's all the same, their church work, for lack of a better idea. But the words are specifically different. As we look at the, the ideas in the original, the, the word charge, when you see it in your, in your King James there, it has the idea of, of guard duty, of protecting the tabernacle. It comes up a lot in chapter 3, as you see highlighted in green there. And then the, the other times, it does show up in chapter 4 as well. The word service, 
which we instantly will, will tend to think, oh, that's their ministry. It has the idea actually of physical labor, of their toiling, of their working, of their lifting, of their putting together, their building. The Levites were responsible for the physical labor around them with the tabernacle. You're going to see that highlighted vastly in chapter 4. Not so much in chapter 3, it does appear, but chapter 4 is going to talk about the physical labor that the Levites were to be doing. And then a couple times in chapter two and, or 3 and chapter 4, you're going to see the word minister or ministry. And it has the idea of serving or service, that they're going to do the ministry with the priests or help them to do their ministry. They're going to place themselves under the priest to do their work. When we look at those words and you, you notice the differences, they highlight some interesting dynamics in the chapters. Chapters 3 and 4, they're going to highlight the Levites' ministry and their responsibility to the Lord, to the priests, and to the people. In chapter 3, it's going to focus on the guard duty, the protection of the tabernacle by the Levites when the nation was encamped, when they had set up shop. They were going to encamp all the way around as we talked in our last session, and they were to protect the tabernacle. Chapter 4 is going to deal with the physical labor, the physical work that each clan of the tribe of Levi was responsible and involved in when, with the dismantling and the carrying and the reassembling of the tabernacle. This was when they were on the move. So it's not just their encampment orders, but it's also their on-the-move, their marching orders. So chapter 4 focuses more on the marching orders of the tribe of Levi and how they were to move this, this structure, this, this building uh, called the tabernacle. What were they supposed to do? What was their responsibility? Chapter 3, the census that is taken, is going to focus on any male over one month old as we looked at last time. Chapter 4 is going to focus on any male from the age of 30 to 50. Why did they do that? Some of us don't like that because we start looking and saying, wait a second, I only got eight more years of ministry of of service left here. Remember the perspective. The word is about the idea of the physical work, the carrying, the tearing down, the moving. And so they chose individuals. God said, take those individuals who are mature enough They're not in their teens, in their early 20s. They're maturing in life. So they're starting at 30 and in their physical prime. So while they're there, they're able to carry. Think you're carrying items that are heavy on staves, on on poles, for distances over rocky terrain. You had had to be physically able to do that. And so that's why they chose. It's important to note when we talk about the tabernacle, the chapters three and four, as we look at chapters three and four, in the, in the book of Numbers, and we talk about the tabernacle. The tabernacle is, uh, this is talking about the Levites' responsibilities during the tabernacle period. The tabernacle period is from Moses, here at Mount Sinai when they build it, all the way through David. After David, there's going to be a change that occurs. Their jobs are going to change, the Levites' jobs. In fact, David says it in 1 Chronicles chapter 23. He says, and so the Levites no longer need to carry the tabernacle or anything for its service. Why was that going to take place? Because with Solomon was going to come the building of a permanent structure for worship, the temple. 
So the job description of the Levites was going to change later on during the temple period. They're going to become musicians. They were going to become uh, custodians of, the, of the, the temple. They were going to help with some of the sacrifices more intimately with the priests. And so there was going to be a change. And you can read about that in First Chronicles 23, 24, uh, right in that, that area where David's going to give new instruction, new jobs. And that happens. That happens in ministry. Things change. Life changes. And so we have to change it up. We have to adjust and do different things for ministry's sake. Change happens. We can't fear change. We have to look for it and we have to adjust and we have to be ready to, to take part in that. And so the, the numbers three and four here, it's talking about that, that time period before David changes, before Solomon's temple. This was what the Levites were to do when the tabernacle moved. The tabernacle is important to talk about. In fact, 50 chapters in the Bible, think about that for a second, 50 chapters are talking about the tabernacle. And a good majority of those chapters are dedicated directly to the creation, the care, the transportation, the ministry of and in the tabernacle. Exodus has 13, Leviticus has 18, Numbers 13, Deuteronomy 2, Hebrews has four chapters on it. There's a lot of information around the tabernacle. For, so for us to just simply jump around and say, oh, no big deal. We're just going to take the tabernacle and we'll skip over it. Because what is the tabernacle anyway? Oh, it's a place down in Lancaster. Or it's, a, it's just something where the Jews used to worship. It doesn't matter for us anymore. The tabernacle is important for us to study and for us to understand. And as we, we get a glimpse of the tabernacle, it points forward to a beautiful picture of Christ and Christ's ministry and Christ's sacrifice and all that Christ provides for us. It is a wonderful study, and I'd encourage you to do that sometime. Exodus chapter 25 and verse number 8 says this, And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. God is telling them, make me this tabernacle. The tabernacle was to be a sacred space, a place that is set apart, a place that was holy unto God, that would remind the people, as it did in in the ancient Near Eastern culture, that um, this was where heaven came to meet earth. This was the beautiful picture that this is where God was residing. It was that visible reminder when they would see the tabernacle, they would remember God is with us. It is God who has led us out of, the, out of Egypt. It is God who is leading us to the promised land. It is God who is in our midst, in the center of our camp. He is the one who is with us. And as we look at it, it reminds me so much of John chapter 1, verse 14. Do you remember that, that verse where it says, The word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. The word that is used there, the word dwelt, is the idea that he tabernacled, that heaven came to earth in the form of flesh, that Jesus Christ came and God is now with us. He is Emmanuel. The tabernacle points forward to Jesus Christ and it is a beautiful picture that God sent his son to earth. Why? To atone for, to pay for our sins. And the process that a Jew would go through in the tabernacle was constantly showing that picture of their sins being atoned for, of their sins being forgiven. And so the tabernacle that is demonstrated is not something for us just to jump over or gloss over, but we ought to take the time to study. 
and to understand the, the pictures and the, the foreshadowing and the symbolism of the tabernacle. In fact, as we look at the tabernacle, God goes into great detail. We're not going to do that in this study. We don't have the time, and it's not, it's not for us as we go through the book of Numbers. We'll look at the chapters in the book of Numbers, but if you want to do further study, you can go to Exodus chapters 25 to 31, and then it jumps a little bit in Exodus 35 to 40, and then Leviticus as well, and you can do those. But we're going to look at Numbers chapter 4 today and look at the moving of the tabernacle and understanding a little bit about these holy items that they were moving. So in Numbers chapter four, and we're going to pick up, uh, it says verse four on the screen, but we're going to go to verse two, where it talks about, take the sum of the sons of Kohath from among the sons of Levi and their families and by the house of their fathers from 30 years old and upward, even until 50 years old, all that enter into the, uh, into the host to do the work of the tabernacle of the congregation. So remember, what we're going to do is we're going to have the second census here of the tribe of Levi. Now, as we talked last time, the census is not simply, right now we're all in the census, count me, count me, count me, and that's it's all over the place. But the census is not simply about numbering the people, it's also about giving information to the people, what they're supposed to do. So that's what you have, first part, numbers two and uh, four, verses two and three, it's saying you're going to number them, here's who you're going to number, and then verse four, it's going to be, this shall be their service, and the information is going to start flowing to this tribe of Kohath in verse four and following. So as we, as we look at it, we're going to look at this tabernacle. The tabernacle in the Bible, as we, as we understand it, and as uh, drawings and schematics have all been done, the tabernacle, as we look at it here, you're going to enter into the tabernacle. And as you enter into the tabernacle, you're going to first come to what's called the brazen or the bronze altar. This is the altar where the sacrifices are being made, where the burnt offerings take place. And then the priests would go from the, the brazen altar and they would go to the laver where they would wash their hands and their feet before entering into what's called the holy place. Inside the holy place were three different items. Those three items that were located in the holy place were the candlestick right there, the table of showbread, or sometimes called the table of the bread of presence, and then the last one, the golden altar, or also referred to as the altar of incense. And now when those items that were there, they are in the most holy place. Only the priests would enter in there. Only the priests would see them there. And then after that altar of incense, the golden altar, there there is a great veil. The veil that is there, and the veil separates them from the most holy of holy places. And inside that holy of holy places, as most of you know, is the Ark of the Covenant or the Ark of the Testament. And I'm taking this jacket off because it's hot in this place, and I should have should have just taken it off. So I'll take it off here, and and do that. There we go. the uh, The holy place has the Ark of the Covenant. Now, just take a quick picture of those items in your mind, or maybe you've sketched them out, or maybe you're, you're really familiar with it. But those items that are there are going to, as you move closer to the holiness of God, there's a more sacredness. There is the dynamic where a priest can only go so far. And these items all need to be moved. You can't, who can move them? Can anybody move them? Can anybody just walk in and say, okay, hey, I want to move this. I want to move the Ark of the Covenant. It's my turn. There was not that ability. So God is going to say, here's how the ark is going to be moved. In fact, verses 2 through 20 of chapter 4 are only given to the priests and the clan of Kohath. 
that's it. The other two clans that are part of the tribe of Levi, they'll come later on in the chapter. But the first 20 verses, all around this, this clan of Kohath, and specifically a lot of them to the priest, to Aaron's family, and saying, Aaron, you and your sons, Ithamar and Eliezer, here's what you are to do to get the tabernacle ready for transportation. And so let's look at the priest's responsibility for a second. You pick up in chapter 4, verse 5. Verse 5, it's going to talk about, to this clan of Kohath, it's going to start off, and when the camp sets forward, Aaron shall come and his sons, and they shall take down the covering veil. They're going to take down this, this veil that is in between the Holy of Holies and the holy place. And they're going to cover the Ark of the Testimony with it. So they're going to remove this veil and they're going to take it forward and drape it over the Ark of the Covenant. And there they're going to wrap it and they're going to cover it completely. And this was the place where the high priest would, would enter into the Holy of Holies. But at this point, when the veil came down, they were able to enter in and cover it up. But remember that the, the, the veil here, this is the same veil uh, symbolically that is rent in two in Mark chapter 4, or 15, excuse me. And that it's the one that Hebrews it talks about in chapter 10, that when it was rent, God has now made access through the veil that is Christ's flesh to enter in before God. God becomes that the, the way, Jesus Christ becomes the way to God. So this, this veil is going to be taken down. It's going to be draped over the Ark of the Covenant. And then after it's draped over the Ark of the Covenant, which is the most important of the holy items, this marked the divine presence of God. The, the Ark there in Exodus 25, verse 22, it says, And I will meet with thee, and I will commune with thee from above the mercy seat, where those angels' wings, are, the cherub wings are touching, this is upon the Ark of the Testimony or the Ark of the Covenant. This Ark was sacred. It was holy and it was to be covered. It was to be taken care of. And then after the veil was draped over it, there was a, a layer of, if you're reading your King James, it's going to say badger skins. If you're reading in any other version, it's going to, version, it's going to say uh, porpoise skins. And then it was draped with the blue cloth that says in verse number six uh, that, was, that was over it. So there are multiple layers wrapping around, protecting, showing separation between the people and the holiness of God in the Ark of the Covenant. Now, just to go back on that badger skin or porpoise skin, which one is it? We don't know. Uh, we look at, is it, is it a badger? There, there are some badgers in the Middle East in the Palestine area. There are also porpoises, uh, not the bottleneck Atlantic dolphins, but a different type of porpoise down in the Red Sea area. We're not real sure. We do know that they use the porpoise skins a lot for leather and it's waterproof. One of the problems that people bring up is neither of those animals are considered clean by Levitical standards. So if they're not clean, why are we draping them on the most holy of items? So we don't know exactly what it is. We do know that there is a, a leathery waterproof skin of some sort that is draped over to protect the items. And you're going to see that idea of the badger skin or the porpoise skin come up multiple, multiple times. Then, once the Holy of Holies is taken care of, and once the Ark of the Covenant is covered, then they're to work on those three items in the holy place. So the priests are then going to work on the table of showbread, or the table of the bread of presence, sometimes, depending on uh, the version you're reading. The priests would then take 12 loaves. These, the table of showbread had 12 loaves of bread on it, had frankincense put on it, and it was there to provide and to, to remind people of the spiritual and the physical provisions that God had made for them. And each week, 
the priest would change out the bread and the bread would then come back and the priest would eat that bread. And it would all be continually symbolic of the presence, God's presence before them, the presence of them coming before God and the beauty of the provisions of God. I can't help, but when I look at the tabernacle, constantly thinking about Christ, remember what he said? He said, I am the what? The bread of life. He says, you will eat of me and you're never going to hunger again. There is a beautiful picture that's even pointing forward with that. Another instrument that is there is the menorah or the lampstand. The lampstand gave more than just light. It was a constant symbol or picture that represented God's life-giving presence to the people. Again, do you remember what Jesus Christ said? He said, I am the what? The light of the world. And I give you the light of life, those who believe in me. Again, pointing forward to the beauty of what and who Jesus Christ is. All these items are beautifully symbolic. Now, the the lampstand is interesting because the lampstand is going to be one of the items, if you read through the text, that's not carried directly on staves or or poles over guys' shoulders. It's going to be placed upon a bar or upon a a board or a, a platform of some sort. And its, its snuffers and its instruments are going to be laid on with it. And then that is going to be carried rather than just throwing the menorah up over the shoulder or trying to balance it onto, it would become like a carnival game, trying to balance a menorah onto two sticks. So there's, there's a bar or a platform it talks about in verse number 10 that it's placed upon. Then the last item that's in that, that holy place is the, the golden altar or the altar of incense. This is the furthest point that any priest could go into in the worship process, except for the high priest. But the high priest, for the most part, only went this far as well. Because remember, it's only one time of year that he would go past the altar of incense, through the veil, and into the Holy of Holies. And he wouldn't do that without the shed and sacrificed blood of those pure and spotless animals. And so you look at the symbolism, the beauty that you can only go so far, you can't go to the holiness of God without the shed blood of, of someone we know of Jesus Christ. Again, beautiful pictures that take place. This place was a place of perpetual incense and offering to the Lord. Exodus chapter 30 talks about that the, the priest shall go in and they shall burn incense day and night. When they go into light and trim the, the menorah to make sure that the lights are still going and add oil to that there to also make sure that the incense is continually going uh, before the Lord. And then again, once, once a year, the high priest would go past that. Exodus 30 highlights that, to go past this altar into the holy place. The incense that's going to be offered here was very sacred. It was a very holy mixture. It talks about it in Exodus 30 as well. And it gives you all the different components and, and some, of the, some of the spices, some of the herbs, we're not real sure what they are. But what's really interesting is, is what is talked about at the end of Exodus 30. Uh, it, it, says, it says in the passage there that if you even try to replicate this, it says that it is, you will be cut off. He says in uh, Exodus 34, verse 38, whoever shall make like unto that, to the smell thereto, shall even be cut off from his people. This mixture... This incense that was going to be burned was a holy offering to God. It was not just something to be common or cheap or just everybody try to replicate. I love copycat recipes. Try and figure out how to make, you know, this item from this restaurant. But this was not supposed to be trifled with. God says this was a sacred offering to him. 
because God is holy. You see this constant picture of the majesty, the holiness of God that is there. It was the aroma of forgiven sins. As you smelled this, you knew that sins were being forgiven, that they were being atoned for, that they were being paid for. Then you move outside in the passage, verse 13 and 14, it it moves a little bit further out of the tabernacle. So we start in at the most holy place, then we work at the, the um, the holy place, the holy of holies, then the holy place. Now we're outside in the courtyard of the tabernacle. And there, there's another altar. Verse 13 talks about, they shall take away the ashes from the altar. The idea is the ashes, the one that is burning everything. That's the bronze altar that they're going to take there and they're going to spread a purple cloth on that. This is the bronze altar was the furthest point from God, the closest to the people. It was the place where sacrifices were to be made. It was the altar which showed that there was a need for a substitute, for the blood to be shed, to enter in, for any, any progression forward. There had to be that, that sacrifice that took place. And it took place upon this brazen or the bronze altar. And then if you go to verse 16... Uh, we'll come back to 15 in a second, but verse 16, it says, and to the office of Eliezer, the son of Aaron. So we're still talking about the priest's responsibility. He says, the priest pertains, so Aaron or Eliezer, here's your specific job. You're going to look at these items that are considered most holy and sacred. They have been consecrated specifically for worship and set apart the oil for anointing, the oil for the lamps of the, the menorah, the sweet incense that we just talked about, the meal offering that he was going to be, or probably the grain or the cereal offering that was going to be offered on a continual basis. Eliezer was responsible for all of those items during that time. And he was given watch over them, verse 16 says, while they were in transit. So Eliezer is given basically two responsibilities. You see throughout those verses, Eliezer is the one who is to oversee the, the packing up of all the holy items. And he is to carry these most holy items uh, as they are in transit, these, the oils and the, the herbs, those types of items with him. And then you look and you say, okay, so what? Great, we know a whole bunch of information about the packing order and what they were supposed to do for the Levites. Well, let's, let's take a step back and remember something. In this whole process, the holiness, the transcendence, the majesty of God is being protected. Yeah, I understand God does not need protection. He can protect himself. But this is a visible way that is being shown that there is a distance, that there are only, uh, there's, that, that this distance can only be made up by the holiness of God. We can't just enter in trivially and just do whatever. He looks at, you look at it and look in verse 15. I think this is, there's two little words there. It's after that. It says, when Aaron and his sons have made an end of the covering and sanctuary and all the vessels of the sanctuary. So after they've done all that, as the camp is to set forward, after that, the sons of Korah shall come to bear it. They're going to put it up on their shoulders. It's going to be their burden. They shall not touch any of the holy things lest they die. These things are the burden, they're the weight of the sons of Korah in the tabernacle of the congregation. There is a process that is to take place. The priests are the ones active in most of the verses. Verse 15, in their order, at the proper time, the Kohathites were to come in and to carry those items. The packing begins, look at, look at the progression of the packing. It begins with the most holy item. And it moves to the holy place. 
and then with the altar and the lamp and the table. Then it's going to move to the outer court, to the bronze altar. We're assuming the laver as well, though there's no instructions given. We're assuming that they did not make a laver every time they moved the tabernacle, though they may have, and that's why it's not talked about, but the, the movement of the laver as well. But wh- why is this important? Why is it important to deal with the certain order and the certain way in which all of this was done? There was a protection, as I mentioned, to the holiness of God, to the majesty. It kept a mystery about God. There is a mystery about God. There, Deuteronomy twenty nine twenty nine talks about the secret things of the Lord belong to him. There are things that we do not understand, and that's great. Because the moment I can understand everything about God, that makes me God. And there is no way anybody on this world wants that to be the case. We don't understand everything about God. There is a mystery about him. And yet he reveals so much to us. There is a dynamic where we don't understand completely the transcendence that God is above all. And yet he is imminently close to us. That God is completely holy and I am to be distanced. When there is that familiarity that just comes in, we have to be really careful to just say, oh, it's no big deal. We don't use, I, I, don't, I don't use it. I don't think we should just trivially say, oh, he's the man upstairs. He's the big cheese. He's, no, when we get to the point where God's just a big brother in the sky, that idea, that familiarity with our, with our majestic God, it breeds contempt. It, it brings us to the point where it's like, okay, he's just God, no big deal. We'll just do whatever we want to do. No, there is, a, there is a distancing that takes place. Even Einstein said the most, the most beautiful experience we can have is the mysterious. Not saying Einstein's a Christian or that he understood. He just understood there's something amazing about not understanding everything. And there's a beauty to the austereness of God, to the uh, transcendence, to the majesty of our great God. Not only that, there was a protection of God's holiness and the majesty, but there was a protection for the Levites as well. Look at verses 18 to 20. Very interesting. Where it says, Cut off ye, cut ye not off the tribes of the families of the Kohathites from among the Levites. But you do this to them that they may live and not die when they approach unto the most holy things. Aaron and his son shall go in and appoint them every one of his to his service and to his burden. What is, what is being said here? Basically, priests, do your job. Do your job well. Prepare this area. Prepare the items so that the others can come in and do their responsibilities. So that they don't come in and die because they've seen or they've touched the holy thing because you didn't pack them up correctly. You take great care. You create, take great detail in packing of making sure that it is done correctly to care for others. It it parallels Ephesians 4. I highlighted a little bit last week. The idea that as pastors, we are to do the work of the ministry. Our work of the ministry is to equip you so that you can do the work of the ministry. It's not just the the pastors do. It's not just the priests do the, the ministry. It is we as a body work together. We as a family work together so that we are training and that you are doing the ministry and we're all coming together to serve in order to do great things for God. God desires order and not chaos. We can't get around that in this book. That God has a plan and he has a purpose and he wants it done orderly and and not chaotically. We know that later on in Corinth, we're told that all things are to be done decently and in order. God is systematically throughout the Bible a God of order, not a God of just chaos and come in and do whatever. There is to be order even to our worship, to our life. 
We are to do that. Even to, some of us would struggle with this, wouldn't we? To want to go in and say, oh, so-and-so needs help carrying that beam. It looks like they're struggling. And to go over and carry the, it's not my job. It's not my responsibility. That was theirs. We had the, everybody had their part, their responsibility, as it said at the end of verse 19, that they knew, and it talks about later on with the clan of Merari and the clan of uh, Gershon. They all had their part, and they knew exactly what they were supposed to do. We are to pack responsibly to them so that they don't die. That's what they were being told. In other words, everybody does their part. When everybody does their part, great things happen. We all have parts to play. We all have responsibilities to do. Let's do our responsibilities. Let's do what we're called to do. I remember back on a missions trip, and uh, sorry, Tyler, if you're watching, this is not any reflection on Tyler. This is just the picture I had about packing the trailer. We, were, we went down to Florida on a missions trip, and on the way back, when we were getting ready to go back, the preacher boys wanted to pack the trailer. They, they wanted to take some leadership. I appreciated that. But I explained to them, you have to pack this a certain way. I need, I need the weight up front. I need the weight in the trailer to be spread out so that it's not going to move back and forth. And they're like, yeah, yeah, we know how to pack the trailer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they just basically blew me off. And I said, okay, go ahead. You know, and I, it was one of those, I was going to use it as a teaching opportunity because I assumed what was going to happen. So they went at it, packed it. You know, it's 85 degrees and humid in the morning and they're drenched and we're all ready to go. So we take off on the, on the road to drive back to PA. And as we're driving back, I, I can see the trailer. It's just, it's whipping to one side and it was constantly moving. So what do we do? I pulled over to McDonald's and said, all right, everybody out. And we got out in a McDonald's parking lot. We unloaded the entire trailer. And then I looked at the preacher boys and I said, I told you, this is how it has to. Let's pack it correctly. And I'm going to tell you, packing in, a, in an aluminum trailer at, in, in Florida with that amount of temperature and humidity, we were drenched afterwards. But it was because it had to be done because it wasn't safe for me to drive that trailer with everybody. That's a trailer. How much more with these sacred items? God looks at the, the priest and says, you do your job, you do it properly and adequately and with great detail so that others can do their part as well. The, the rest of the duties in the chapter, you see it laid out. We've went through them already a little bit in a previous lesson. But in, you see it for Gershon, the, the clan of Gershon, in verses 21 to 28, that they are going to be responsible for all the curtains, the, the, the cloths around the tabernacle, the cords that are holding it together. And then Ithamar, the other son, Eliezer, and then Ithamar, Ithamar is res responsible to oversee the structure of the tabernacle coming down. Merari, the, the clan of Merari, is in, they're responsible for the boards and the beams and the bars and the sockets and the pins and all those different little, little facets that are going to help hold everything together. So everybody knew their part. Everybody had their responsibility taken care of. Everybody counted to a degree. Now, we look and say that right now with the census, everybody counts, everybody counts, everybody counts. That wasn't the case here. In fact, do you remember if you look through uh, the rest of the census, you're going to see from verses 34 uh, down to the end of the chapter in verse 49, you're going to see that there is a counting, but it's only a portion. It's all of those ages 30 to 50. And there are all the numbers. You can read through and there's some, there's some redundancy, but it's, it's done for a reason for all the writing and the history keeping that they did that. But you see all the numbers here and look at the Levitical total in verse 48. 
the total of all the Levites there who were able to remember, this is not all the Levites, it's not a contradiction to the previous chapter where it says there's 22,000 Levites. This is the men 30 to 50 who were able and mature enough to handle carrying, doing the physical lifting and the physical work of the tabernacle, of moving the tabernacle. There are 8,580 of them able, able to do that. So when we look at the tabernacle and we say, okay, all, those, all that great information about the tabernacle and what's all happening, when you read about the tabernacle, as you keep going forward, ask yourself these questions. What does this passage teach me about God when you look at the tabernacle? You can't get away from the holiness of God, can you? It's constantly there. What does it teach me about my sins? We can't get away from the sinfulness of man and that our sin does not allow us to approach a holy God. There must be a substitute. What does it teach me about Christ's redemptive work, the the, the lamb who substitutes himself, who takes our place so that we can enter in before a holy God because of Christ's blood, because of what he has done? And then how does that, in my response to the holy God and the redemptive work of Christ, how do, what is my response? How do I live to glorify God? When you study the tabernacle, ask those questions and look at the pictures and look at the beauty, the pointing forward of what Christ has done. So what are some of the Levitical lessons as we look at chapter 4 that we can learn today? What happens when we look at the, the chapter 4 as a summary and say, what can we learn? I truly believe as we look at this chapter, we can learn that obedience to the Lord even in the seemingly minuscule and mundane, is expected by God. Here's, here's what I mean. Look at the last verse of chapter 4. The last couple words. It says, Thus were they numbered of him as the Lord commanded Moses. Go back one chapter. Chapter 3. Look at the end of verse, at the, verse 51. It says, According to the word of the Lord, as the Lord commanded Moses. Look at the end of chapter 2 where it talks about verse 34. And the children of Israel did according to all that the Lord commanded Moses. Guess what it's going to do at the end of chapter 1. And the children of Israel did according to all that the Lord commanded Moses. So they did. This is four chapters of numbering people. This is four chapters of learning how they are to march, learning how they are to move, learning what their responsibilities in life are. And what does it say they do? They obeyed. Even in the small, even in the minuscule, they obeyed. I think it teaches us that amazing things can happen when everyone does their part. Think about those minuscule things. Maybe you had the small job with the tabernacle of removing rivets. Maybe it was your job to carry the ark this, this time. Maybe you had the importance of carrying the holy oils and the, and the offerings. Or you had the minuscule things of untying ropes, winding them up, and then putting them all in a group to carry. Or possibly you were the one who was preparing each other for more. You were the priest who was going to do more. But everybody doing their part allows us to do more. Can I ask you, what part are you doing? When we look forward to God and his family that he has now, us, the church, what part? I'm so thankful for some people who do parts that nobody ever knows about. Maybe nobody sees the person who trims the bushes or does the sound booth or the person who works in the nursery. They're all parts that are necessary. But what part are you playing? How are you taking part in helping God's program, God's body to grow and to function? Maybe it's through prayer. Maybe it's through giving. Maybe it's through encouraging and visiting. 
But we all need to be doing our part because when we all do our part, it helps each other more to become the way God wants us and be more like Christ. There's, a, there's an interesting dynamic. I think a, an interesting parallel. Service to God is honorable and necessary for the thriving of worship. Uh, the parallel to me, it's not a one for one, but I can't get my head, I can't take my mind off of it. When we look at this parallel of what the Levites do, they do the physical labor in chapter four. Why? So that the priests are able to focus on sacrifice and on worship. That parallel comes through later on in Acts chapter six. Though it's not, the, the deacons, a deacon is not a one for one with a Levite. I'm not saying that. But you see this picture where, remember in Acts six? Acts 6, you have the the apostles trying to do more of the work, and they're saying, we can't because of some of these other things. So what do they do? The office of the deacon is birthed. It it happens because they're doing their part. And I I think as we come in the next weeks here to voting for deacons, we have to remember this concept that's there, that it's it's a concept that the deacon is one who serves. It's not just an austere power play. It's not just, hey, look at me. I want to be in a position of prominence. The deacon is the table waiter. The Levite was the one who served. They did the small minuscule, the small things. All of us in our lives, when we serve God, it is honorable. It is necessary for our worship as a church to be thriving. And then I also see that though God is everywhere, he desires us to know and appreciate his presence with us. That's the whole point of the tabernacle. It was that visible reminder that God is with them, that God was in their midst. We have it even greater with Jesus Christ that he has come to be with us, that he has tabernacled with us, John 1, 14, that he is Emmanuel, that he is God in the flesh, that God is with us. We look and we say, wow, Christ is here. He is the ultimate fulfillment of the tabernacle. In fact, would you go with me to Hebrews chapter 9? Hebrews chapter 9 uh, it's, it's a beautiful passage, but it highlights the fact that Christ is greater than the Old Testament tabernacle. And I don't normally do this, but we're going to read through a number of verses here and just follow along with me. Hebrews chapter 9, and we're going to start in verse number 2. It says, For there was a tabernacle made, the first one, wherein was the candlestick and the table and the showbread, which is called the sanctuary, the the holy place. We just talked about that. And after the second veil, the tabernacle, which is called the holiest of all. So that veil into the holy of holies, which had the golden censer and the Ark of the Covenant overlaid round about with gold, wherein the golden pot that had manna and Aaron's rod that budded in the table of the covenant. And over it was the cherubim of glory showing the mercy seat of which we cannot now speak particularly. Now, when these things were thus ordained, the priests went always into the first tabernacle, accomplishing the service of God. But into the second, or to the Holy of Holies, went the priest alone once a year, but not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the heirs, the sins of the people. The Holy Ghost, this signifying, that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest. It wasn't known while the first tabernacle was yet standing, which was a figure, it was a picture for the time then present. It was them for them to to be thinking in the present or the future, in which were offered both gifts and sacrifices that they could not make, that uh, that did the service perfect as pertaining to the conscience. 
which stood only in meats and drinks and diverse washings and carnal ordinances imposed on them until the time of Reformation. But look at verse 11. So he's looking and saying this, this tabernacle, it was a beautiful picture, but it couldn't finish the job. It wasn't the, the final. But there's one that was greater than that. Verse 11. But Christ, being come a high priest of good things to come by a greater and more perfect tabernacle, one that was not made with hands, that is to say it was not of this building. What was he saying? The tabernacle, as we learn from John 1, was his flesh. That Christ became the way, that he was the greater tabernacle because he gave his life. He was that perfect tabernacle. Christ is the one that we look to. And when I thought about this passage in relationship to Numbers 3 and 4, especially number four, Numbers 4, this question has really stuck with me this week. One that just I want us to walk away with as we think about everything else with the tabernacle, we think about Jesus Christ. What does this question do to us? Do we love, serve, and obey our greater tabernacle, Jesus Christ? Do we do it with dedication? We could have with joy and with fervor the way that the Levites served the lesser tabernacle. They served that tabernacle with duty, with honor, with pleasure, even in some of the mundane and minuscule. That was their service and their duty to the lesser tabernacle. We serve the greater tabernacle. How do we serve? With joy, with fervor, with excitement, or do we look at service and say, oh, I don't have time. I don't have the energy. Life is too busy. We'll do God on Sunday. How do we serve? And how's our hard attitude? I pray that we will serve the greater tabernacle with the dedication and fervor that the Levites served the lesser tabernacle. Lord, help us to serve you with joy. Help us to follow you with obedience and help us to love you with great passion and excitement and fervor and zeal. Thank you. Thank you for the great tabernacle, Jesus Christ. Thank you for the sacrifice that he provides that the blood of bulls and goats could not finish, but he finished it. That it is paid in full, that my sins are forgiven. Lord, thank you for Jesus Christ. For it's in his name we do pray. Amen. Thanks for joining us.